back. Welcome back to yet another live episode of Behind the Lens During Life in the Time of COVID. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with directors, writers, producers, costumers, editors, sound editors, um, you name it, production designers. We talk to them, the best of the best in film and television, with a loving concentration on the independent film world. And right now, with no theatrical, with no theaters being open in the United States or in Europe, um, and only a few, I think, trying to open in uh, Asia, everybody is looking for something to see, something to watch, something you can stream digitally or pick up video on demand on your favorite or least favorite cable channel, um, pay-per-view. And these are, the, these are a lot of the films that we're showcasing uh, that we have been the past month. We're going to continue. I've got live guests booked up for booked up into mid-June every week for you. Uh, and all talking about new films. Two new films that are out. One comes out tomorrow. One is out right now. Same Boat is out right now. Butt Boy comes out tomorrow. At the midpoint of the show, you're going to hear from our special live guest calling in. Uh, writer, director, and the film's lead, Tyler Kornack, and writer, uh, co-writer and producer, Ryan Koch. Uh, it is a darker sci-fi comedy with a heart. Uh, and it's not often you can say that about a sci-fi film. I watched that after I saw Same Boat. Same Boat. The first thing I wrote down in my notes watching the film was sci-fi sweetness. Um, very likable cast. You've got co-writers Chris Roberti, Josh Itzkowitz, and Josh, I'm already familiar with his work. Uh, he produced an independent film, Empathy, Inc., a number of months ago, and I interviewed the director on that. Uh, and it's a wonderful black and white film, very cutting-edge cinematography by Darren Kwan. Uh, Darren reteams re with Josh and with Chris for Same Boat, which is, get this premise, assassins from the, from the 28th century come back to present day. The mission being to assassinate and eliminate people who in the future do things that hurt the planet, hurt the world, cause cataclysmic repercussions, um, if this were in real life, they really need to go back and find out who started COVID. Uh, but that's another story and a good one for another film. But in this particular case, the adventure of the assassin, now in present day, takes place on a cruise ship. And he starts to like his target. And there's a shift in his mission um, as he gets to know her and gets to know other people on the ship the film same boat was shot on a cruise ship um minimal crew cameraman your writers your actors uh and that's and chris is also director that's pretty much it uh and as you're going to hear in our exclusive interview i just spoke with the boys the other day they are affable amiable charming 
Um, this is Chris's directorial debut uh, with a feature, first feature directorial. Josh has been producing. Uh, and Chris also, he's got a very lengthy background in editing and acting, but editing is where is one of his big strong suits. And it comes, you can tell, it comes into play with his directorial eye. Uh, but because it is a 29-minute interview trimmed down, without any further ado, let's take a listen to Chris Roberti and Josh Iskowitz talk about Same Boat. And when we're done with that, we should have Tyler and Ryan with us to talk about the charming butt boy. So let's hear from Chris and Josh on Same Boat. I have to tell you guys, first of all, Josh, brilliant job producing Empathy, Inc. Ah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I interviewed Yadida about that, and wonderful film, really wonderful film. Thank so, you, thank you. I, I, I loved working on that, and Yadida is a, is a middle school friend, so, so we've been working together for a while. Wow. And so to you know... school projects with Yadida? Thankfully, no. I don't think it would have worked that well. You know, <laughs> that film would not have worked in middle school. Uh. <laughs> but knowing you're in, working as a producer on that film and watching that film, and then seeing Same Boat, wow, wow, <laughs> totally opposite ends of the spectrum here, Josh. Yeah, you know, I think each film is basically trying to experiment with something else. So, you know, it's less about kind of, for better or for worse, sticking with one thing, but just kind of getting excited about something and then trying it out. Um, so that's, yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of how they both happen side by side. Well, I have to tell both of you, I just adore Same Boat. It ha oh, there is a, there is I can honestly say I have never used the term sweet or sweetness with a sci-fi-esque film, but that is exactly what this film is. It is a sweet sci-fi fun adventure that has a great oh, moral you. moral theme and message by the end of it. And you have fun and you just love some of these char these characters along the way. Chris, I got to tell you, a knockout job as James. Oh, thank you so much. You know, where where did this idea come from for this film? This is not a breakfast table conversation where you're <laughs> you're emptying a box of Captain Crunch and all of a sudden I'm going to do a film called Same Boat about 20th Century Assassins. <laughs> Um, well, Josh, you you kind of had the seed, so yeah, I, I I can kind of tell you how we we came up with the idea to film on on the boat, and then maybe Chris can talk a little bit more about the story. Um, the the original idea came about after uh, after actually the first film that Yudidi and I made together called Jam, where we we filmed that at a at a music festival, and Chris was one of the the main actors in that film, so that's kind of how we all met. Um, and, and after that film, I, I kind of had gotten the idea that it would be nice to sort of figure out a way to hack a production on an indie film just because it's so painful trying to feed cast and crew and, and get lodging for everybody and transportation and all these things are just impossible to do with a limited budget. And so kind of thinking through that, realizing that a cruise ship might be 
you know, maybe the perfect place to shoot uh, an indie film just because all of those logistics were taken care of for you. Um, you know, and so that's, that's kind of how we got started on just making a film on a cruise ship. And then I approached Chris with that idea and asked if he had wanted to collaborate on it, you know, sort of create it, write it, make it together. And, and he came on board. Um, and then, um, and then, yeah, I mean, let, I'll let Chris talk about sort of the story itself and how we got the time traveling assassins. We so we wrote the the first well first I was thrilled with Josh. This is always the dream that someone comes up to you and be like, I want to make something fun. Would would you do it with me? Um, and so I was thrilled first of Josh asked me. Um, and so we wrote this heist film. It was like a diamond heist, kind of in the vein of Naked Gun, mm-hmm. um, on a boat, and. We got to a point where we're like, you know, I guess we have a story and we should go try to take a cruise to see if we could make the movie. And so we took a test cruise, which was a year before the, we shot the film. It was the same, it was the same boat, well, it was in the same boat, but it was the same cruise that stopped in the same locations. And we sort of did a bunch of scouting and we quickly realized that we could not make the movie that we'd written, the, the heist movie. It would have been too disruptive, you know, to, to a boat. Um, but that we could totally make a smaller movie. And so then we sat down and I think Josh maybe or Mark, the other writer, had the idea, I think it was Josh, he was like, what if it would be terrible to like, break up with someone on the first night of a cruise? Um, and we all thought that was funny. And then we all we kept thinking and we thought, oh, what about like a time, like sort of an assassin among in love? And then it was like, oh, what if it's time travel assassin? So we just sort of merged all of those. <laughs> It works so well being set on a boat because you're kind of in your own time and space. So you don't have all of the trappings of anything else to interfere. So you can actually just drop that concept into any time frame, actually. Well, I mean, then we were like, oh, we should do like a vampire story on a boat. Yeah, okay. Um, So it definitely might be its own subgenre, but it is sort of like, you know, a and Josh had also said, you know, so many indie films are like in different apartments in New York City mm-hmm. or Los Angeles or something. Um, and I think this, he was totally right on. It's like, well, this would give us a bunch of production value to do a film, you know, on, on basically on a boat in Key West and in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, why not? Come on, it worked for Aaron Spelling with The Love Boat. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> you can't go wrong. If it worked for spelling, it'll work for you. Yeah, the spellman. Yeah. <laughs> Were you always going to quote unquote star in this as well, Chris? Or were you just going to handle directorial duties? No, I think um, the idea was that I would be in it and, and do that. Which is hard. It's hard, I think, to write for yourself. So I didn't really. Um, I was just kind of, you know, I think sort of letting the narrative drive a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was the that was the plan from the get go. Now this is your but, first. And also, I will say too that that like the idea that that I'm the only director is not really accurate. You know, Josh and Darren, the DP, and I kind of really shared all duties. Um, mm-hmm. It's such a small thing. Everybody's doing everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, now how surreptitious was this shoot on the cruise ship? Did because obviously you've got all the passengers on the ship, you've got crew right. on the ship. 
Were you running around with releases to everybody, having them sign off in case they land on camera? Uh, <laughs> or or uh, did you not yeah, tell yeah. anyone? So we, we, we all sort of agreed ahead of time that we would not tell anybody, no matter like how safe it, it might feel, just because you, you end up making friends with some of the crew members and some of the other passengers, but we were always a little afraid that, you know, we'd get found out in, in some fashion. Um, and so there, there was a commitment towards trying to keep it as much of a secret. Um, at, at times, people started started to catch on a little bit. Uh, you know, the first day we were filming, we were kind of drawing attention to ourselves because we didn't we hadn't really figured out a system. And so people were just it looked like there was a little bit of a film shoot going on because you kind of do take after take, and you know that that was a good realization that we had to change things up a bit. Um, I remember also the we were talking about how we were going to film something, and and the crew director walked by and looked at us a little sternly and uh, asked for our names and our room numbers and we were kind of afraid that maybe we were caught out uh, but then we, he like sent a plate of chocolate strawberries for him just because I think that's what he does he kind of meets people on the boat and sends them nice things so you know we never really got caught but um, we did not get releases from people the idea was always that uh, the 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 cruise ship is sort of a public domain, even though technically it's a private space. Mm -hmm. and, and kind of like Escape from Tomorrow made that movie at Disney World, and they sort of argued that it was parody. We kind of figured our movie took place in a similar environment, you know, with these time-traveling assassins, that it wasn't really a realistic uh, sort of just drama film that we could kind of get away on similar legal grounds without actually having to get releases. And so that's kind of what we talked about with, with our distributor and then the lawyer that the, that the distributor got. So no, no releases from anybody. I will say also that, you know, we, we took the same, we booked the same cruise back to back one week after the other um, with the idea that if, if, if like it rained or, you know, sure. we, we had a second chance at, at the, at the time. We, we only have like six hours, I think, in Key West and maybe eight or ten hours in Cozumel. So there's windows that we needed to kind of hit until we booked it twice. But Josh, what did the woman, when you booked it on the phone, what did the woman say? Oh, yeah. I, so so we, we booked these two cruises, and I think maybe not surprisingly, no one takes the same cruise back to back. There's no, really no reason to. It's <laughs> um, the same itinerary, you know, each day in and out. And so I booked three rooms on each cruise. We booked a, a, back, a room with a balcony, a room with a window, and an interior room. And the idea being that we get to use each of those as different sort of sets sure. on, on, in, in the film. And the woman just was, like, shocked. She's like, I've been working for this cruise company for 20 years, and no one ever has ever booked the same cruise twice for the same room. She was, like, wondering if, it was, if we had a religious superstition or something. But it was just, I mean, it, it, was, uh, it was kind of fun. But I, I think that was almost as bad as it got, you know, that uh, on the cruise itself, there's so much mayhem going on and you know it's just like an uh, an unruly place where i think people are kind of drinking a lot and, and there's really a fear that people are going to fall overboard so a lot of the crew's attention is kind of focused on on that making sure like a fight doesn't break out or you know so. <laughs> nobody dies. yeah exactly okay so in other words this is not a happy you know family-oriented carnival cruise that you guys were on <laughs> Well, no, well, I mean, I think that's it. It's just like such a range of people, and um, it's really one of the most diverse groups that I have been in. Wow. Very, very diverse um, in terms of race, and it seemed kind of, you know, even 
age and body type. It was everybody kind of went on this thing. So, you know, there was there was partying, but there was also family time. It was, you mm. know, it's like the mall. <laughs> like the, okay. So obviously, right. since it's not in the film, nobody <laughs> fell overboard, did they? Because I'm sure you would have caught that on film. Like that, that, we, yeah. that would be, yeah, that would be like a terrible documentary. I mean, it would be terrible, but it, I'm sure we would be more famous if we, if we yes. in, in the event of filming our little movie captured something incredible. Um, oh. But no, I think everybody, all the souls were accounted for who left. Okay. They, they kept threatening that they would they would leave people <laughs> in, in ports if they didn't make it. They're like, the ship is going to leave with or without you. Oh, my God. Talk to me about this, <laughs> you guys, about this collaboration with your DP, with Darren. I know he used the yeah. Sony A7, uh, A7S, which is a fabulous camera when you don't can't have lighting equipment around. Yeah. They have the A7, yeah. the F7, and I know, uh, you know, you get incredible result when you can't bring in lighting. So I'm curious how you worked with Darren and what you went through logistically in terms of coming, uh, in terms of the shooting. And then I got to tell you, production values are far superior to what I would think they were going to be if you're being surreptitious on a ship. I really yeah, like yeah. the production values. <laughs> so, so Darren also um, was a cinematographer in Empathy, Inc. Yes, so he, he was. <laughs> So, and, and that's kind of where I had seen for the first time, like, how much that guy could do with so little. Um, you know, he's the type of person where it's like a, an assistant camera, and AC doesn't show up for the day, he'll, like, happily say, okay, sure, I'll pull focus, that's not a problem. There's, like, he has no ego about him. You know, he's used to doing sort of documentary-style work. And it wasn't until I met him that I really kind of locked into place, like, this would be the type of person who could pull off shoot like this and and a lot of the film was always kind of conceived of let's use whatever resources we have and so that the camera that we use the sony a7s2 we use as a b camera on empathy inc you know we mm -hmm. thought that with the idea that we could kind of use it for these films or commercial projects and then sell it at the end of the, those productions and kind of get our money back mm -hmm. we already owned the camera and and darren sort of i think kind of like chris and i just like was up to the for the challenge he never done it before and he was probably never get to do this type of thing again so he was sort of down to, to do it. And, you know, the whole movie is just him with the camera strapped around his neck. And that's it. There's no other crew. There's no tripod. There's, like, nothing else. And I, I think, we like... Didn't, we didn't have monitors. I think we had a monitor, but we quickly stopped using it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just wasn't working. And so he, like, even even a shoot like this, which was fun, it's still stressful. Oh. And, and oh. someone, like... Tim just doesn't get stressed out. He's always the calmest person on set. He, he did get seasick, which kind of like proved to be a oh, little bit of, of, of trouble. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, he just was able to kind of point that in a steady way and, and really find whatever angle looks best and capture like nice lighting from sunsets, things like that. That's Darren, really. Oh, yeah, but Darren, like, I'm sure we showed him the test footage from the cruise before, but he was just couldn't get the scope of the, the layout and kind of, you know, We'd run the scene a few times and he would, you know, do whatever kind of wizardry in his head and he'd be like, all right, these are the things we need. Um, so it was like a very, it was lovely to work with Josh and Darren. It was a really nice. I've got to commend you guys. Um, like at the hour mark of the film, you get a really nice tonal shift. You got that's a song that drops in your needle drop in there, um, the music, and then your cruise montage. 
around the hour 15 mark is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. I love it. Which, which, which is the cruise montage at an hour 15? I'm trying to remember. That's probably the, the final. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that montage a lot. I think that's a lot of fun. It's beautiful. You could lift that out. It's a whole travel log. Yeah, I, yeah, well, that was the thing. It's like, this is sort of uh, an advertisement in a way. It truly um, is. <laughs> you know, and I think if Cruise Line should be jumping and asking for your footage, know. you know, after all these ships being stranded at sea during the pandemic, they need something to make yeah, people want to get on a idea. ship. Yeah. open it up for like a film camp or something. That's it. <laughs> I, I, I think this film does, and I'm kind of curious to get, you know, hear more from people as the movie gets watched. But earlier on when we were showing people cuts, I was really curious if the movie... Uh, made them want to go on a cruise or made them never want to go on a cruise. And I think I was actually getting more responses that this sort of film, uh, you know, kind of endeared them towards the idea of going on a cruise, uh, especially like towards the end when you sort of see people having fun on the boat, see James just enjoying it. Just, I'm curious Although for I you. Would that. Oh, yeah, go on. Go on, Jeff. Oh, I was just curious, Debbie, for you, if, if the film had that effect, did it make you want to go on a cruise after watching it? Oh, definitely. Especially if you guys make a film about vampires on a cruise. Count me in. I'll be there for that one. All right. You know. We'll have you aboard. I mean, I think it veers into the realm of propaganda, if that is the takeaway. Well. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> if, it's a, if it was a clear-eyed documentary, I think, people, I think everyone who does, I mean, everyone that we went with was like, it's equal parts heaven and hell, you know? Talk to me about your casting. You've got some really nice casting here. And I I have to I love Tanya Blance. Tanya is amazing. And yeah. your chemistry with her, Chris, is just it yeah. you believe it a hundred percent. Okay. Um yeah, everyone, you know, everyone we knew were, were friends. I mean it's a similar thing to the crew. It was like who can who's up for fun? Who do we know well that we can work with and that, you know, we'll be living and hanging out with? Um, so who is not going to cause trouble? Um, and we, you know, they're all, like, I had worked with Tanya before. Jeff and I work with place. Gary worked. I've worked with him extensively for years. So these were all, like, our friends. So there was a shorthand and, um, you know, an existing kind of, like you said, chemistry. I have to say, Jeff and Evan, I was unfamiliar with their work, and I just, I think they're fabulous. They're so funny to me. I just love them so much. I've got to ask, how scripted was your dialogue, and how how strongly did you adhere to that? Because, number one, the, the back and forth, the banter, the repartee with everybody... It's very believable. It's very conversational. It's very casual. But then you have these little gems in there like, oh, yeah, killed Hitler like 400 times. And it's just, I'm just laughing my ass off at some of this stuff. So I, I'm just curious how, how this process was with the dialogue versus the actual on-screen day of shoot with what was coming out of mouths. I really think it was, I would say, 99% scripted. Josh, is that what you think? We didn't yeah. have a lot of time to kind of improvise. My, my memory was that it was mostly scripted, but I also, like, remember that Jeff 
who plays Gary, uh, came up with a bunch of really funny lines, like the day of or as he was like rehearsing them on his own that made it into the film. And then I think yeah. Evan, who plays Rob, kind of came up with a bunch of like really, I would say almost like improvisational, like physical, like cues. Like a lot of his sort of comedy, I think, comes from how he's like delivering the lines. And, and mm -hmm. I think he has like a really good natural comedic instinct. So even though a lot of the lines were scripted, he he kind of really figured out a way to make it his own and, and sort of push that character. But yeah, a lot of the film was scripted. We didn't really, like I said, we, we've shot 90 pages over seven days. So wow. there was never a time where it was like, let's just let the cameras roll and we'll get what we get. You know, we were, we were really moving. Mm -hmm. How important was it when you were writing this? Because the whole idea behind the assassins is that the, the people that are targeted are people that have done bad or potentially do something that will be bad for the earth, for the world, like Lily, a lawyer who finds a, a loophole that's going to allow, oh, gee, we're watching it unfold now, executive orders taking away the EPA. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm wondering how important that was to you guys to include those, those moral ramifications in there for the, the assassin's targets. Well, I think I wanted it to seem like, I, I guess I think of these assassins not as like um, special agents. Right. But more like um, civil servants or school teachers or, you know, like it's the, the kind of future we imagined is like, these are kind of like, it's not a very good job. Um, it's not really successful. But, and they've had to like, make a bunch of concessions along the way. Like we said, like, well, we tried for the big man, like Hitler, but it just doesn't work out. So we have to kind of just keep going down the pecking order until it's like, you know, this lawyer or the producers. <laughs> um, so I think there's a little bit of fatigue and, and um, a jadedness or kind of a, what's the word, just sort of like a, you're ti tired of it and you don't really believe in it. But that, you know, on paper, like these weren't people who were malicious or, or you know enjoyed killing it was just like all right this is hopefully going to make the difference mm -hmm. you know, they had their doubt. i just love that aspect of the film there was a, a large i don't think this gets in the movie but um the idea of killing people on vacation because like you're disoriented mm -hmm. you're in a new place you know you don't you, your friends aren't everyone expects you to be gone in your regular life mm -hmm. um so that, uh, that that is a you know that is a good kind of from a, an assassin's point of view. No, well, which is why vampires will work really well on your next one. Exactly. I yep. love it. And they could only come out at night and have, they have no rooms. See? With windows. I'm pushing for this vampire one, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm All pushing right. for the vampire right. one. <laughs> so, You're on board. You're on board as a producer, at least. Okay. <laughs> at, the, <laughs> at the end of the day, now that this is, is out, people can start seeing it. Chris, for you, this is your first feature directorial. What what did you learn about yourself stepping into the director's chair with this one? Uh, because I know you had done TV before, and you've done editing before. So I'm curious yeah. as to whether how your editing helped inform you as a director for this one, and what you did learn, the learning curve, stepping in at directing a feature. I think... Well, again, the t it's like the team that you go in with, I think, is everything. So with Josh and Darren and then the, the cast, it was, you know, um, it was fun. It was manageable. And I think 
in terms of like during during production, you know, it was well. I don't know. I like the idea of we just have we have maybe two or three takes and we have to keep moving. I like working like that. And you know, I think the big lessons are in post production mm-hmm. about how much work and how much how long it t- took to kind of finish it. And that's where I mean, that's another one of Josh's many strengths is kind of the finishing power. So that I think is something that is like, oh yeah, we can make a movie, we can write it, it's fun to write it, it's fun to shoot it, and it's a lot less fun to like edit it and, and kind of scrounge money for editing or for like color correction or for like contacting bands that we can use their songs. There's really nothing thrilling about that, um, but that is a very important, uh, that's an essential kind of, you know, skill set. Mm-hmm. And, what, and what about for you, Josh, as a producer and the diversity that you have as a producer, how does, and your strength, as Chris so kindly said, your strengths in post, how does that, how does that come into play in a film like this with a first-time feature director, and then you get into the post process? How is that for you? What do you take away from this, or what do you think you contribute? You know, I I think one of the things that I like as a producer over a director is getting to work with more directors. Um, So working with Yudidia is very different than working with Chris, and they both have different strengths. Um, And and also, like, I get to come to Chris with this film and, and, you know, know a little bit about what it sort of takes or what the timeline is to get the film finished, because I've done it before. Um, And and so for me, it's more so um, knowing the sort of pieces that go into it, uh, getting kind of Chris on board with understanding what that looks like or, or what, like, the struggle might be to, to get there. And also trying, I think there's always this, like, question that you're asking, um, is the film done? And, <laughs> and we thought the film was done almost a year before it was done. We were submitting it to festivals and it wasn't getting it anywhere. And we thought we had just kind of finished it and then we realized we didn't and we had to go back and re-edit a, a bunch of the film. And so I think... You know, it, it really does feel like a marathon when you make this thing where it's just not going to be over in a month or six months. It can take years. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the writing process is fun, the shooting is fun, and the post-production is almost hellish in that it's just never-ending or can be never-ending. And so it, it, it's nice to have a, a partner on that, you know? And so I, I, I think one of the main goals is just to make sure it gets finished because I, I think it would just be such a terrible... I think if you, if you feel like you owe it to all the cast and all the crew and everyone's worked on this thing for little to no money, and, like, the one thing that you're guaranteeing them is that the film will be done and they'll, like, have something to show for it. And so there, there is this kind of responsibility that you feel towards those people. And so that helps drive the process towards completion. And then you get to go into the distribution process. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and we got lucky with that, in, in part because Empathy... Uh, got Dark Star on board to be the distributor and, and we already had that relationship now from Empathy Inc. And then when I send them this film, you don't know how they're going to like it or, or how they'll respond, but you know they did like it and they did want to pick it up. And I, I think for me, the lesson is that these things kind of build upon each other. You know, Empathy mm-hmm. Inc. helped make this film get distribution a little bit more possible and hopefully the next film gets a little bit easier also in that, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Well, the one big question I have for you guys, especially you, Josh, since you're the man with the checkbook, how much of the budget went for Dramamine for the cast and crew? 
<laughs> I will say we bought generic Dramamine ahead of time in order to reduce the budget. But there was there, there was one prop Dramamine in the film where we actually had to buy the real thing um, that we used towards the end of the film. Brian, I think, is the only person who got um, seasick, yeah. Of all so people. going to throw up on, on us because, you know, he's, he's working the camera right in us. I was very worried, but he, he really soldiered through. I have, I've got to know, before I let you guys go, what is the gift? What is the gift that filmmaking gives to each of you? Be it as actors, writers, producers, directors, what is the gift that the insanity of this business gives to you, other than the fact that you can book two cruises back-to-back -back in the same rooms? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I, I really like... You know, working as part of a team um, on a specific project. You know, I've I've worked in different ways, like sometimes on like sort of construction crews or in you know smaller kind of teams like that. And it's there's a similar feeling of like we're all we have a, a goal in mind and we're all working together and we you know we have a little culture that builds around that. And then sometimes when the job is done, we all go our separate ways. But I, I like that. I like kind of getting to build a culture around, you know, making something together. And it's also, you know, fun to get to get to do it. I love movies, I love watching movies and TV, and it's like fun to get to talk back, kind of. And what about for you, Josh? I, I think and it contrasts each other a little bit. Um, one is, I think, just creatively making something is, is really satisfying and and so I think making a film is it, 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 even more so because you just put so much time and work into it I think commercials are fun because they take weeks to a month or so but you know spending years on a project is, it's just nice that you get to be in it for so long and, and then I also think it's like kind of nice to suffer a little bit you know and, and you definitely suffer when you make a film so uh so it's, it's nice to have that uh you know you don't want things to be too easy for yourself <laughs> and that was Chris Roberti and Josh Itzkowitz talking same boat. It is available right now, digitally streaming. See it. It's a lot of fun. It has. It's got the sci-fi element to it. It's got comedy to it, and it ends up there is a real sweetness and really nice messaging by the film's end. Um, and now, all right, let's let's shift gears here. Okay. All right, gathering all of... If you're watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream, you can see the, all the mess that I have here on the table. You can see our lovely tablescape with all of our Disney Funko items. Um, but, okay, Pam's going to bring the boys live now. Okay, shifting gears, a big welcome now to... Tyler Kornack and Ryan Koch. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey. How are you? How's it Thanks going? Having us. I am so thrilled to talk to the two of you. This movie... Oh, oh we're happy news. to be here. <laughs> I did not know what to expect with Butt Bo a film called Butt Boy. Um, and we'll just... We, because we're going out live and because the owner is very particular, we're going to keep it clean. As clean as, clean as gotcha. we can. got it. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll as, do our best. well, as I was telling our engineer, um, the movie has no profanity in it. Um, 
it really it's a quirky premise. Um, but is this has so much heart in it, and your production values are through the roof. But oh, what, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. But what really in, initially sets the tone of Butt Boy is that first 13 minutes. Um, yeah. Before, you know, up until the 13, 15, 13 minute, 15 second part, when your title, your opening titles start rolling, you've already set up the whole premise, the whole story. You get into it. We know about hapless, miserable Chip. Uh, we know that things are missing all over the place. There's a child missing. We know he's miserable. He's in a crappy marriage. And then we, at 13, 15, we jump nine years later. And yes. things start really unfolding. You waste no yes. time. And yet, thanks to your editor, uh, thanks to Austin Lewis, you've got a slow burn going, even though the film is the what the story is not slow and right right yeah you, that was the whole idea you, you said pulled, it perfectly you pulled this off so magnificently i can't wait for people to see this film tomorrow <laughs> oh thank you very much we appreciate it but now you've got to tell me where do you come up with an idea of a guy goes and gets his annual prostate exam and then all of a sudden he is an alcoholic, but instead of drinking alcohol, objects keep disappearing. Um, yeah, it's wild, right? Um, it, it's so we, we bizarre. Our background is kind. Of, we we have a comedy. Um, we have a comedy channel called Tiny Cinema Online, and we what we did for years. We produced these short films that were just little jokes, kind of like what Bup Boy is, but they would be a minute long, one minute, and that's kind of the rhythm that you're talking about in the beginning of the film, the mm -hmm. original short film was kind of a one-minute condensed version called Butt Boy, and it was, it was kind of always our favorite sketch. And uh, over time, we the idea kept coming up. We were going to extend it and make it a longer short film for a while, and then Ryan and I were out to dinner one night, uh, and he, he just brought up the idea, what if we just made it into a feature, and it kind of just snowballed from there. We could kind of see it pretty clearly, and we knew we could start the film with that rhythm of, you know, telling that big story and then go into the backstory and, you know, take its time to get to the ending. So that's kind of how it came about. And it was one of our more popular videos online. So that we also knew that people were kind of into it and they liked it. So that helped as well. It, well, it's it's the whole idea is so funny. And you have oh, you, you have so many comedic moments because Tyler, I have to say you never break character. There's one moment in the film where you actually break a smile, and it's not until about the third act at the birthday party scene with your son. Uh, oh, yeah, right. That's right. the only yeah. time you ever get out of this droll, downtrodden, you know, the old sad sack comics of the 1940s and 50s. That's exactly what you play. And, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I think it's, it's hysterical watching that. Watching you yeah, like it's just that. Yeah, deadpan. I mean, that's oh. kind of the only thing I'm capable of doing. <laughs> <as an actor. laughs> I, I don't have much more range than that. It's very, uh, I can do deadpan well, and that's it. I mean, I can't even scream on camera. It would be a very uncomfortable for everyone watching if I were to attempt to scream or anything like that, where I have to get my voice too loud. So it, was, it, it came easier than you would think. It, it, it worked 
it, but it works so well to really set the comedic element, the darker comedic, the the raw humor that you've got going here. And then you well, we appreciate it. You spend the bulk of the film. The only person you're really opposite is Tyler Rice, who plays Detective Russell Fox. Tyler is just he he is a compilation of every unshaven, unkempt. It brings all this noir goodness to the character, um, but really plays like you know a slovenly deadbeat cop. I was looking for you know uh, Peter Fox trench coat on him, like a Columbo almost. Oh, that's so funny. We love we love Columbo. We love Peter Falk. <laughs> but uh, you've got the two primary characters here are Chip and, and Detective Fox, who comes in nine years later after the setup, and he's assigned. It's he First, he's an alcoholic. He's looking for help. Chip is his sponsor, an in absentia sponsor. That was very rude of Chip to, to not take his phone calls. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, he was busy. He was he was very busy, as we find, as everyone will find out in the third act of the of the film. But the way the two of you play off of each other, and here again, this goes to Austin's work as an editor, going back and forth, and then bringing in these beautiful, stunning, colorful montages. God. Oh, you're so nice. That's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Mitch, I tell you, if I didn't like the film, I would tell you, and I would say it live on air. Um, but your pro- oh, that's great. your production. I'm glad it went this way. Your production values <laughs> are so good. But you've got Billy's Billy Morian's cinematography. You've got Austin's editing, and this is a marriage made in heaven. Um, it is. Yeah. You know what were. And so much of this is visual with this film. What were, because you're directing Tyler, but the two of you are like two, both of you, Tyler and Ryan, I think you're both like two peas in a pod here. Um, Tyler, what were your considerations as a director and putting on that director's hat, take off your actor hat, put on your director hat, and then working with Billy first of all, to come up with your visual tonal bandwidth because your visuals are very distinctive in terms of color palette and lighting. Um, in, the yeah. po- in the police station where you've got Fox talking with his sergeant, um, you, you come in, you've got Billy coming in with ECUs, extreme close-ups are there, you've got a gold with a greenish in the background, a very noir lighting aspect happening you've got search parties outside happening where you've got reds and blues merging into purples you use yellow for caution metaphor chips front door on his house yeah this is man you really got it this is so (laughs) well thought out so i'm curious as to your considerations working with billy to establish this visual palette the visual tonal bandwidth first yeah, I can explain that. Um, so what we did was, because I was having to act in it too, and I, I have never really done that where I had to act and direct something. Um, I, I think I worked beforehand. We had access to all the locations that we shot. We were very low budget, but that was a huge benefit that we had. So mm-hmm. what we did was we went in and we took still photos, literally of pretty much every frame 
in the movie. And we would go in just with our phones or sometimes a camera, whatever, and we would take still photographs to make this. That's how we storyboarded the entire movie. So Ryan would come in with us. It was actually majority Ryan. Ryan would kind of act as every character and <laughs> I would I would sit we would have him sit in one chair then he has to switch to another and then we would take photos of that and then what I did was I would print out um I printed them out on this new age HP printer that are like that turn them into these little sticker cards that you can mm-hmm. just put in the template for storyboarding so each frame had it so on set it would be really easy to say okay this is literally the next shot is this. We had the whole movie mapped out beforehand. So it was really easy for the crew to understand, oh, okay, um, that's exi- and the actors, actually, because they knew where the, the camera was going to be at all times. And then um, actually in the Blu-ray, if anybody gets the Blu-ray, quick plug, there's a whole special, in the special features, we show the whole breakdown of how we <gasps> did it. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of how it was done. And it just helped me not feel overwhelmed. Like I kind of knew what it was mm-hmm. each time. How did, every you, shot. how did you guys come up with the co- the design, the color palette itself? Because color teal, is yeah, so Yeah, teal was key. our big color in it. So everything has that teal kind of neon glowing to it. Mm-hmm. Teal was kind of set in the, in the beginning. We knew it was going to kind of have that feel. Mm-hmm. And the yellow kind of came organically. Actually, exactly what you said from the caution tape, and it just contrasted well. So, yeah, all the colors. Um, teal was just kind of the base, the base of it. And then in color correction, we just kind of messed around. But those are always the colors I love to see just from a personal level. I think Ryan could agree that um, yeah, those are just the colors. The teal, teal and oranges and yellows are just so pretty. There's something about that combination. Mm-hmm. So we just took that to, as took that to an eleven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your your color saturation and what I love is your distinction between Chip's house, the interiors. It gets flat, but you're using like a GE bright white light bulb in there, uh, so it's mm-hmm. stark, but. It's flat. It's lifeless. Whereas everything else out in the street, um, Detective Fox's world, it's vibrant. It's saturated. And you get this this color. Um, and it just looks right. glorious. The whole, night, the whole oh. night stuff has a life of its own, too. Which oh, your, your night shots are exquisite. They are oh, thank you so, much. so beautiful to look at. And then we even we get to the third act, um, and you it's it is literally the bowels of hell, and <laughs> right. with the red, and you bring the teal back in there, very saturated as a neon, um, yeah, and just so incredibly well done. And I'm curious, uh, you know, what you did to create the caverns and. Uh, and the tunnels, uh, what your production yeah, so designer, let, what Lauren I'll, did there. I'll, I'll touch on that, and then I'm going to let Ryan tell you what we had in the original draft uh, before the blue was Uh-oh. there because it was wild. But um, so we shot we shot the the cavern stuff, all that all that stuff that you see is at the Bronson Bat Caves in Hollywood. Um, it's up in the Hollywood Hills. It's kind of <laughs> it was made for the old. Adam West Batman uh-huh. series, where the old Batmobile used to drive out of. Mm-hmm. So what we did was that was a very scary part of filming because we were kind of, we didn't that was one location we couldn't do the full test that night that we wanted to do. So they blocked it off. That it was those were really late nights. It was like 
105 degrees in that cave. So all the sweat you see in there is real. And our budget, we were so low budget, we couldn't even afford to have a fire marshal there, which you need for electric. So everything you see lit in there is actually, this is more praise for Bill and Joel LaVolte, who's gaffer and kind of hands on deck. But that was all battery powered and solar powered. All the lighting in that cave. And we would be up there from six, in the evening to almost like three or four or some nights 5 Mm -hmm. a.m. We would be up there packing up and then it would have to be open for the day. So we would have to take everything down and then come back the next day. And we were there for five days in the heart of summer. And um, yeah, it was, it was grueling, but honestly, I don't know about you, Ryan, but it was my personally, my favorite part of shooting the movie. First of all, because I wasn't in those scenes. (laughs) And secondly, uh, it just felt like a real movie set. It felt huge and big, and it was. It was a blast. But let me, Ryan, you should tell the story of um, of what we had originally in the script before. The oh, yeah. Liquid. We, uh, before we decided on, like, the, the kind of leaky walls, we had this insane idea that we were trying to get down. But uh, just with our low budget, and everything, we weren't going to be able to fully pull it off properly for people to actually buy it. But we had him drinking Pepto-Bismol and then having this giant pink kind of like shining like flood come into them and them having to hide from this Pepto-Bismol flooding the entire, his entire bowel. Yeah, we were going to try to do like, this this giant leakage. like, a sh- like I, I think you said the shining, like the shining hallway of Pepto. Yeah. But- oh, my God. Wasn't um, in the budget. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we there, we weren't gonna be able to get it off the ground properly. Oh my god! But I have to say that that entire third act in the bowels of hell, that is, <laughs> is. the entire look. Um, it's very very sensory. It's very tactile. I gotta tell you. So yeah. <laughs> just really really well done. Um, well, thank you so much. You know, yeah, thank you. You know, how difficult was it for you, Tyler? You're wearing so many hats, and you know, you also, Ryan, because you're both your co-writers, you're both producers, um, you're both composers, and I've got to commend yeah. and the music. I love the music that you use. You you bring in some techno oh, stuff. You. you get throbbing pulses. Thank you, thank you. You switch to a horror-esque kind of bass at one point, like around the 40-minute, 35, 40-minute mark. Um, you even bring in a vintage when Chip and Detective Fox are sitting in a diner eating after their first AA meeting together, and it's like an old 40s song. Yeah, yeah, that one on. actually, that one we didn't actually compose. That right. was a realty free yeah. song. So. That was, yeah, that, that was, was a real one. Yeah, because I've heard yeah. that song before, and it sounded very much like a Nelson Eddy, La More. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. There's so many great diner songs you can throw behind scenes like that that just take it to another level. But so I'm curious how you each, and particularly for you, Tyler, because you're also starring. Your lead. You're in. Up until the third act, virtually every scene. Uh, but for some that are Tyler playing, you know, in the police station, uh, or right. or you know, on a stakeout, staking out Chip, or spying on his yeah. ex-wife, um, you know, take your pick. But how do you go about taking the hats on and off? 
uh, in terms of for both um, of you as writers, because how pr- how precious are you with the words on the page, and how they're coming out, and then you, Tyler, being a director, and how is it directing yourself? I know some actors have difficulty with it. Did you, you know, what was that experience? Um, yeah, I guess I'll start with the writing. It's weird because we're not very religious about, you know, we don't, you don't have to stick with the dialogue, but the movie actually is, um, there's almost no improv in it, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Yeah. Um, it's almost word for word exactly what's on paper. So that was pretty interesting. Um, as far as the hat stuff go, if I'm honest, I, I really don't even remember acting in the film all that much. I know that sounds weird and crazy, but. We rehearsed the scenes quite a bit, so I was just kind of in, like, autopilot doing it, and it kind of worked, I guess, because the character's kind of in this weird zombie-like, you know, monotone state. So I was able to do that. I was way more focused on the directing throughout the entire thing. Mm-hmm. So I guess I don't even know really how to answer that, but it's just I, I honestly don't remember acting in a lot of the scenes. I was just more worried about, like, the <clears throat> rhythm of the edit and the shots and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did a lot. We, we rehearsed before, so I had the... Um, we, were, we rehearsed quite a bit for the bigger scenes beforehand, so I kind of knew the beats and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and the music, just to speak on a little bit more, too, the music was... we Ryan and I were... While we wrote the screenplay, we wrote the score, which was a really great experience because there would be sections of the script where we go, oh, this could just be those montages you were talking about. This could be this slow motion part and the music mm-hmm. can kind of do its job and, um, and carry it throughout. So we would even play the soundtrack. Most of the soundtrack was done. We did a few songs after while we were editing, but mm-hmm. we would play the soundtrack on set for even for the actors and for the camera just to feel, oh, this song is going to be here and you could feel the vibe of it all. Which is really beneficial, I think. And you have to, you can write a lot less. You don't need as much dialogue if you know, oh, we can do this visually with this song here. Mm-hmm. And um, if that makes sense. So that was a huge benefit. And I hope we can always aim to do that. Ryan is actually, we're, we're working on a pilot right now that we just shot before all this madness happened. And Ryan's been scoring the whole thing um, wow. through phone. So he'll he'll send me stuff, and we're doing kind of like the same thing that we did on Butt Boy, which is cool. So yeah. it's kind of a really fun experience. Now, Ryan, were you like a second set of eyes behind Tyler to keep him in line? Would you, um, would you... Not really. Just, be, just because there was um, so much to deal with, like, production-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, you know, like, beforehand, you know, Tyler and I did a lot of the legwork on, like, getting locations and getting things prepped, but um, really, I was, like, the kind of sole on-set producer mm-hmm. with another guy, Ryan, but he had to bounce between our shoot and then, like, his actual job, mm-hmm. so um, it was very much, like, just handling, like, the production, like, making sure, you know, all the actors are good, getting the extras, you know, food, like, just kind of making sure everything's running smoothly and you know, kind of being the gopher as well um, mm-hmm. on top yeah, of all. So, yeah, it was kind of just letting Tyler, you know, do his thing because he knew, I think beforehand we kind of knew exactly what the movie was going to be. Um, so it was just allowing him to kind of zero in on that and get it right. Mm-hmm. Now, how long were you in post with your editing? Or were you doing any editing while you were, we were shooting? We were in for quite a, we were, we were in post for a while. Um, 
and that wasn't because that was because of numerous things. We had a really janky computer cutting this that gave out <laughs> on us halfway through. Then we had a few we had a huge few or a few huge cuts where we cut chunks of the movie out. We had a lot of scenes that we shot that didn't make the movie. Um, almost because they were too funny, they would be. It wouldn't be loyal to the bit we were trying to do, where mm-hmm. we play it straight the whole time, and it just became a little bit too goofy. So we ended up cutting. I think it was five scenes altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah, make sounds about right. Movie. And see, and that's you brought you brought up something very important um, because you did. It's an absurdist premise, but you do you play this straight the entire film which is what brings out inherent humor within there and within, you know, the things that Chip is doing. Um, I still, this is one of the most bizarre things, and if you, and I don't even want to know where you came up with the idea for all these inanimate objects. Um, <laughs> but you also focus on the issues of the vulnerable, addiction, um, depression, mental depression, um, you've got some very serious subject over undertones here. Uh, was yeah. it a conscious decision to include that and be respectful of those? Because you very much are. Yeah, I think um, I think everybody has not to sound cheesy or anything, but everybody has some like some sort of addiction in their life, be it another person or whatever. Um, I know I personally do. I know Ryan has, but it wasn't like. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't talk about that that much. The, the big thing was the tone of the coldness of it. And there's kind of a repetitiveness mm-hmm. of Chip's mindset when he goes through these things. He's oh, kind yeah. of like frozen in time and there's like this weird repetitive vibe. And I, I guess the idea was to try to make it feel like that was the addiction itself. That's how addiction feels. Mm-hmm. Like you're stuck in this thing that nobody else knows about and you're in your own mind and locked in. Yeah, and it's like a cage, and you're drowning, and you can't get out of it. And I think visually, that's what we were trying to achieve, and that was always there from the beginning. So, yeah, you know, and you do for for quite a while in the film, you do wonder: is he imagining? Uh, you know, is he imagining something? Is you know, is he slipping into some slipping down a rabbit hole? Um, but then you've got Fox going off the wagon. And that's right. where you really realize, okay, both of them have real issues here. This is this is not, you know, this is not a dream sequence or a nightmare. This is, you know, here's where playing it straight really comes to the forefront uh, with your structure yeah. and and with your design here. And but it's just, guys, it is just so well done. Thank you so much. Thank really you, thank you it. so it's much. Done. It's been so split because you get, of course, you're going to get some people that just inherently can't even get past the title. And um, there's other people that don't get the humor in it. Like they're expecting it to be more of a fart joke kind of movie. Mm-hmm. And they walk into it thinking that. But the reason, what, everything you're saying is kind of, the, of course, it's the way we see it. You've done a great job in explaining it. And we really appreciate it. It's so nice to hear because mm-hmm. that's exactly what we want to hear. And um, yeah, it's great, you know. It's been, we knew it was going to be split to begin with, and um, sure, we, we love hearing we love hearing what you're saying. So, well, I'm glad you love hearing what I'm saying, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you really—it's visually from a production standpoint, 
Um, it is so worth seeing this, and it is an entertaining film. And yes, if if you know, like not young kids, but you know, I'd say middle teens, like fifteen, sixteen. This is the kind of movie, yeah, they could watch. You've got fart jokes in it. Anything called Butt Boy, you got to have one or two. Um, yeah, for sure. But. <laughs> One of the big things, we're almost out of time here, guys, but I've got to ask you the very important question here for Tyler. Did you get a butt double? I did, yeah. <laughs> um, there's, there's one shot where my, the only shot my actual butt is in the film is uh, the light bulb. I don't okay. know if you remember that, but it's quick. Um, but yeah, I had somebody, and that wasn't even like, I, I'm sure some of it was, out of, you know, an insecurity I have deep down, whatever. But um, it was also just to see the shot. If I didn't have to be in it, I wasn't. So, yeah, our first AC was the butt in a lot of it. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you know, that's always big. You know, for years people would ask, you know, Mel Gibson and that famous line in Notting Hill with Julia Roberts' character and Hugh Grant oh, yeah. asking, you know, well, you know, Mel, does Mel Gibson have a butt double? And she goes... Oh, no, why would he when something looks that delicious? <laughs> um, but, and that was a running joke yeah, for Yeah, mine, years. everyone's going to say something that looks so not delicious. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, guys, this has been so much fun talking to you about this film. And I know it comes out tomorrow, and then it's DVD Blu-ray at the end of the month. Yeah, uh, yeah, you can pre-order the, the, the Blu-ray now, and um, it comes with a poster. It comes out that. in 28th. Where yeah, can, the twenty eighth that'll be out. Where can people pre order? Uh, we're, our main hub we're aiming for is Amazon, but it's going to be everywhere. It'll be on Google Play, Amazon, uh, PlayStation, uh, Xbox, uh, iTunes, uh, pretty much everywhere. But Amazon is what we're focusing on. So. Okay, and that's where they can pre order the DVD and Blu ray. Uh, the DVD and Blu ray you can get from EpicPictures.com and. Uh, the the iTunes you can pre-order to buy the movie now, and everybody can get it tomorrow. They can watch tomorrow. Yeah, yep. it's yep. a bit on all. And I looked; it's on all the digital platforms. So I'm so thrilled about that for you guys. You know, this. Oh, thank you. This has been an absolute joy, guys. Yeah, you've got to come. Great. Thank you. You've, you're so great. You've got to come back on yeah, the show your again. Enthusiasm, like brightening my day so much <laughs> i appreciate it uh well you've got you've got to promise you'll come back on the show again we will oh, for, for sure. sure uh get to work on another project and definitely guys thank All you right. so so thank much thank you so much and i will talk yeah, to you thank both you. soon <laughs> okay okay take care bye-bye take care bye and that war was tyler cornack and ryan Koch talking about butt boy Seriously, it's it. The production values are gorgeous. The cinematography is stunning. Uh, the premise, it's quirky, it's strange, but the movie is a lot of fun, and it's got a twist in there that just ends with so much heart. Uh, so, two two fun movies for you that you know today. Same boat, which you can get now on all the digital platforms. And then Butt Boy tomorrow. That is all the time we have. So next week we've got more live guests for you. Another pre-recorded interview. 
We're booked through June the 8th, folks. Uh, So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.